0: I'm Chris and this is True Crime Recaps. Every Wednesday, my wife Amy and I are bringing you twice the crime in half the time. What does that mean? Simple. Two recaps in 30 minutes. A double feature, if you will. Today I'm catching you up on the largest unsolved murder case in the history of New York, the hunt for the Long Island serial killer. This is one of the most mind blowing mysteries you'll ever hear. In December 2010, a policeman and his dog stumbled on a woman's skeleton wrapped in an old burlap bag, partially buried in the marshy reeds on the side of the Ocean Parkway in Long Island, New York, discarded off the side of the long stretch of isolated road as if someone had pulled over in a car and tossed her into the bushes like garbage. But she wasn't alone. Another body was buried 500 feet away. Then they found another and another By the end of 2011, the human remains of almost a dozen people were found along the parkway. Who killed them, and why are there still questions that have never been answered? In a case as convoluted and bizarre as this one, there's only one thing we know for sure. The Long Island serial killer is still out there.
1: Hey, I'm Amy, and I've got recap number two for you after you get caught up on the Long Island serial killer case and wait until you hear what happened to 25-year-old Sydney Sutherland when she went out for her normal everyday run in Jackson County, Arkansas in August 2020. This is a developing case, and it'll make your blood boil, so don't go anywhere. We're just getting started.
0: I'm Chris, and this is True Crime Recaps. I want to kick off this recap by introducing you to the victims found off the Ocean Parkway in Long Island. Now, you could say that the disappearance of Shannon Gilbert in May 2010 accidentally exposed the burial grounds of the Long Island serial killer. The 24-year-old from Jersey City, New Jersey, had dreams of becoming a singer or an actress, but she was working as an escort and advertising her services on Craigslist. The night she went missing, she had a driver take her to a client's house in Oak Beach, a gated community on Long Island's Ocean Parkway, only a few miles from Gilgo Beach. Her client's name was Joseph Brewer. She got there around 2 a.m. About three hours later, Shannon called 911 from his house. She was on the phone for 23 minutes. As of this episode, the Suffolk County District's Attorney's Office is appealing a recent judge's order to release the 911 recording to the public. In their words, if they did that, it could hamper their investigation, which, as a reminder, has been ongoing since 2011. On the other hand, that judge and Shannon's family and lawyers believe it could be a major clue towards finding out what happened to her and maybe even a critical part of catching the serial killer. The fact that the police and prosecution disagree so strongly is what makes this piece of evidence even more compelling. While we don't know exactly what was said on that call, we do know that Shannon's driver got a call from Joe around the same time she made the call to 911. He told him Shannon was freaking out and he wanted her to leave. When the driver went into the house to deal with the situation, Shannon was on her phone yelling that someone was after her and they were trying to kill her. She ran out of the house and banged on two neighbors' doors for help before running down the street. They also called 911. Then she disappeared. Without letting on what was said in a letter to the editor published in Newsday in January, 2013, a Suffolk police detective said her demeanor on the tape was calm. Male voices can be heard, but they are also calm. At no time during the call was she desperate and she wasn't speaking as if she were in any danger. Shannon's family lawyer was allowed to listen to that call. And here's what he said about the statements that the detective made in his letter to the editor. This letter was pregnant with false statements. The reason why the detective wrote this letter filled with these falsehoods, which are on very key points is mysterious. Now, without hearing the call for ourselves, it's hard to make sense of it, but ask yourself this, would you call 911 and calmly explain that people were trying to kill you like this detective said she did? Or does it make more sense that she was frantic and afraid? And that's just one bizarre piece of Shannon's case. Two days after she went missing, her mom, Mary, got a call from a strange man. He said he ran a halfway house for Wayward Girls and he was helping Shannon. Shannon was still missing almost eight months later in December 2010 when a police officer and his dog found the first victim off the side of Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach, the area where Shannon was last seen. The body was decomposed to the bone, it was wrapped in burlap and hidden in the thick brush lining the parkway. But this wasn't Shannon, it was Melissa Bartholomew. She was 24, originally from Erie County, New York, but she'd been living in the Bronx and working as a hairstylist with a side job as an escort. On July 10, 2009, the night she went missing, she saw a client, put $900 in her bank account, and tried calling an ex-boyfriend. That was the last anyone heard from her for a week. Then her 16-year-old sister got a call from her phone, but it wasn't Melissa. A strange man said this to her. Do you know what your sister's doing? She's a whore. He called seven more times over the next six weeks. Every call was under three minutes. He always called in the evenings, always spoke in a low, calm voice, and only talked to the teenager. If the mom got on the phone, he hung up. He tormented the girl by bragging about all the sexually explicit things he supposedly did to Melissa and the things he wanted to do to the teenager, even telling her he knew where she lived and he was coming for her. On the last call, he told her Melissa was dead and he was going to watch her rot. By the third call, the cops were tracing him, but he kept the calls under three minutes and they were only able to narrow it down to crowded spots. Times Square, Madison Square Garden, and Massapequa, which is only a short drive from Gilgo beach. And after a news station talked about the calls in August, 2009, she didn't hear from him again. Based on his voice, they thought he might be a white male in his late twenties or thirties. And based on the fact that he kept the calls short and always phoned from busy areas, they figured he knew something about the way police worked. Two days after they found Melissa on December 13th, 2010, three more bodies were discovered all four were found within about 500 feet of each other. They are Amber Lynn Costello, Marine Brainerd Barnes, and Megan Waterman. Just like Melissa, they were all wrapped in burlap. They were all escorts. They all advertised their services on Craigslist. They were all petite. They were all in their early to late twenties, and they were all strangled to death. This serial killer has a type. Amber Costello was 27 years old, living on Long Island, about 10 miles north of where her body was found. She went missing on September 2, 2010, after going to meet a client who had found her ad on Craigslist and offered her $1,500 to be with her. Megan Waterman was 22 and living in Scarborough, Maine, when she went missing on June 6, 2010. She took a bus to Long Island for a client date set up by her boyfriend and pimp. She was last seen around 1.30 a.m. leaving her hotel about 15 miles away from where she was found. When questioned, her boyfriend said he didn't know who she was meeting that night. Now, I'm no expert, but I think that makes him a pretty bad pimp and probably even a worse boyfriend, right? Marine Brainerd Barnes was a single mom from Norwich, Connecticut. She was working as a cashier and a telemarketer, and she told her family she was getting into modeling. But when the eviction notice showed up, she told herself she'd try being an escort, but only temporarily, just to pay the bills. She was last seen in July 2007 in New York. She had gone into the city to see clients. A friend of hers told 48 Hours that Marine had regulars she was visiting. Maybe one of those men turned into her killer. Only a few days after she disappeared, that same friend got a strange phone call. An anonymous man told her Marine was alive and well at what he called a whorehouse in Queens. He described her perfectly. Those four women found together at Gilgo Beach in December 2010 are known as the Gilgo Four. But the total number of victims found along Ocean Parkway is much higher. Within the next four months, police found the remains of six more people, four women, a trans woman, and a toddler. Only two of the women have been identified as Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack. Like the Gilgo four, they both worked as escorts. They were both petite and in their twenties, but unlike the other four victims, Jessica and Valerie were dismembered and the remains were found in more than one location and identified at different times. Valerie Mack was last seen in the late spring of 2000 in Port Republic, New Jersey. Her torso was found in November 2000. It was wrapped in garbage bags and dumped in the woods in an isolated area of Manorville, New York, almost 50 miles away from Gilgo Beach, where her head, right foot, and hands were found hidden in the brush on April 4, 2011. Jessica Taylor went missing in July 2003. Her torso was found that same month in the Manorville area where Valerie's torso was found. And in March 2011, Jessica's head, hands, and forearm were found on Gilgo Beach less than two miles away from Valerie. The other two women were also dismembered but haven't been yet ID'd. They are known as Jane Doe number 7 and Jane Doe number 3. Jane Doe number 7 is also known as Fire Island Jane Doe. Her murder can be traced back to 1996. That's when a couple out on a stroll found her severed legs wrapped in plastic in Davis Park on Fire Island. That's a little less than an hour away from where her skull was found on Gilgo Beach in April 2011. The trans woman is also unidentified, but she was found missing teeth, bludgeoned to death, and partially dismembered. The baby was a little girl between 16 and 24 months old. Her body was wrapped in a blanket. She was still wearing gold hoop earrings and a gold necklace like her mother, Jane Doe No. 3. She is also known as Peaches for the tattoo on her torso, which was found in a green plastic bin along with a red towel and flowered pillowcase. A hiker stumbled across the gruesome scene in June 1997 near the shoreline in Hempstead Lake State Park. That's about 13 miles away from the place investigators found the rest of her remains wrapped in plastic in April, 2011. Her daughter's little body was found hidden 10 miles away from her next to the remains of Valerie Mack. At least six other sex workers were found in the general area, all fitting the same general physical description as the other victims. But Suffolk police haven't officially connected them to the Long Island serial killer case. Ironically, the woman who kickstarted this case is one of those victims. Shannon Gilbert's body was finally found in the marsh off Ocean Parkway on December 13th, 2011, about a half a mile away from where she was last seen in Oak Beach. Her cause of death is listed as undetermined, but police believe she may have run into the marsh high on drugs and accidentally drowned. Remember that phone call Shannon's mother Mary got from that strange man? Well, unlike the bizarre calls made to the family and friends of the two other victims, the police were able to trace the two calls she got. Police records led back to Dr. Peter Hackett. He was a neighbor of Shannon's last client in Oak Beach. This guy is quite a piece of work. At first, he denied calling Mary. Then when the police pointed out that they'd traced two calls to him, one to his wife's cell phone, he said he didn't know Shannon. He didn't run a halfway house, and he never had any contact with her of any kind. So why was he calling her? He said he just wanted to help. Shannon was found in the marsh. She was on her back and naked. Her clothes and belongings were found in the marsh area behind Dr. Peter Hackett's house, a few hundred yards away from her body. And she was so close to the road that cars could be heard. Yet her body was hidden in the reeds. So the question has been asked whether or not she was in the middle of a drug-induced frenzy, why would she run so far into the marsh and then just suddenly fall into a pool of water and drown when she was so close to the road? In 2016, her family had an independent autopsy done, which found injuries to the hyoid bone in her throat. That is consistent with homicidal asphyxiation the same way the victims known as the Gilgo Four died. But despite the many similarities, the Suffolk police say Shannon is not a victim of the Long Island serial killer. And that's not all. Get ready for this. They also cleared Dr. Hackett as a suspect in her murder and in the murders of the other victims found in the area. In their words, he's just a guy who likes to get involved in these things. What? This seems unbelievable, but it's true. After Shannon's body was found, he moved to Florida, where he still lives today, as far as we know. Before I introduce you to the other suspects, I want to tell you about one more tragic twist in Shannon's story. Her mom, Mary, who was such a vocal champion for justice for her daughter, was found stabbed to death on July twenty-third, two 2016. She was murdered by Shannon's sister, Sarah, who suffered from schizophrenia. Before her death, she never stopped insisting that Shannon was murdered by the same man who killed the others. In January 2020, police released a piece of evidence they'd been holding back from the public since 2011. They found this black leather belt with one of the bodies. They don't believe it belongs to the victims. As you can see, it's embossed with the initials WH or HM, depending on which way you're looking at it. They didn't offer any other information about where it was found or even what size it is. According to various sources, over the years, police have speculated that the killer knows about police investigation tactics and may even be a former cop or familiar with law enforcement procedures. This becomes very clear when you consider that some of the victims were found across the county line in Nassau County, which means the two counties would have to communicate with each other. And that's not something police departments traditionally do very often or very well. This killer is very familiar with the isolated areas one could dump a body on Long Island, so he probably lived somewhere in that area or grew up there. He's manipulative and controlling, since he most likely messaged his victims first, then continued to torment a few of them through their families by calling them after their murders. Here are some of the persons of interest in this case over the years. First and foremost, Dr. Peter Hackett. He's got to be one of the strangest, most puzzling people connected with this case. Mary Gilbert got two calls from him. The first call was made from his wife's phone two days after she went missing and presumably came from their home in Oak Beach. But the second call came five days after she went missing. And according to a Vice.com article very aptly titled Inside the Bizarre Unsolved Case of the Long Island Serial Killer by Michael Edson Hayden, Shannon's family lawyer is quoted as saying that Dr. Hackett's second call to Mary Gilbert bounced off a New Jersey cell tower. Now, as a reminder, Shannon and her family lived in Jersey City, a place Dr. Hackett denies ever going to at that time. In the same article, her lawyer said that the doctor's home, boat, and car were not searched the way they should have been. And as I told you earlier, Dr. Hackett was officially cleared despite the phone calls, the denials, and the fact that Shannon's belongings were found in the marsh behind his house. And while you're trying to get your head around all that, Let me introduce you to the former Suffolk County Police Chief, James Burke. He's been officially and unofficially accused of a lot of offenses while in office. Here are the highlights. Before he even made chief, he was accused of carrying on a relationship with a drug-dealing sex worker. His penchant for sex workers was brought up again after a woman claimed he paid her for sex at a June 2011 party in Oak Beach. In early 2016, he was convicted of beating and threatening to murder a man by shooting him up with tainted heroin for attempting to steal his duffel bag out of the trunk of his car. The duffel bag was filled with violent, hardcore porn, sex toys, his gun, and cigars. And it's thought that he went out of his way to slow down the investigation into the Long Island serial killer, even going so far as to demote the former head of the task force and forbid the departing investigators from discussing the case with the new regime. He also refused the help of the FBI early on. Coincidentally, or maybe not so much, he was also in office at the same time the wacky Dr. Hackett was working for the county. This is the kind of thing that's fueling cover-up conspiracy theories. Now, Hold on to your pearls because we're about to go down a slippery slope. Thanks to the information in this same Vice article. Apparently, when James Burke was 14, he was a key witness in the John Pius trial, which was Suffolk County's most high-profile case at the time. He was there when his friends murdered a 13-year-old by stuffing rocks down his throat. He testified against them at trial. The prosecutor on that case, a man named Thomas Spoda, became the Suffolk County District Attorney, and he was instrumental in helping James become the chief of police in 2012. Uh, If your eyebrows are raised as high as ours was at that information, you'll be pleased to know that Spoda was found guilty of obstructing justice in the investigation into his protege, James Burke. He was disbarred in June 2020, and James Burke is not officially recognized as a suspect in the Long Island serial killings. Now let's talk about Shannon's last client, John Brewer. His house was searched multiple times, but ultimately he was also cleared as a suspect. But we can't help wondering what could have triggered Shannon's call to 911 while she was in his house. According to the same investigative article in Vice, Joe's neighbors considered him your typical run-of-the-mill bachelor who preferred to pay for sex. He was not thought of as dangerous in any way, but the fact remains, for some reason, Shannon called 911 and said the words, they are trying to kill me. Then she ended up naked and dead half a mile away. Be that as it may, Joe is not an official suspect, and he's since moved out of Oak Beach. And then there's John Bitrolf. He was a carpenter and family man living in Manorville. If you remember, Manorville is where the partial remains of two of the Long Island serial killer victims were found in 2011. There were also several calls made to an unknown number in Manorville from Melissa Bartholomew's phone right before her disappearance in July 2009. In 2014, John was arrested for the murders of two sex workers named Rita Tangredi and Colleen McNammy. They were both found beaten and strangled to death in 1993 and 1994. Their bodies were left in the woods. Tangredi, 31, was found beaten and strangled to death in the East Patchogue area, which is about 30 miles from Gilgo Beach. The police caught onto him through a random familial match connecting a DNA sample from the bodies to a sample from his brother who had been arrested in 2013. So how about that for some bad luck for Killer John? At the time he was arrested, our old friends Tom Spoda and James Burke were still major players in the Long Island serial killer investigation, and according to the statement they made at the time to Pix News 11, there was no evidence leaking John to the murders of the 10 other victims you just heard about. So consider the source. Right now, John is serving two consecutive sentences of 25 years to life for murdering Rita and Colleen, and he certainly hasn't raised his hand to confess to these other murders. And finally, you have local business owner and developer James Bissett. He owns several gardening businesses across Long Island, and one of the products they sold were large burlap sacks, the same size and material that four of the 10 victims were buried in. He was also the co-owner of the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Riverhead and developed the Long Island Aquarium Treasure Cove Resort Marina communities. As a prominent businessman in the area, he had close ties and influence with local law enforcement and politicians. It's also rumored that he might have been a client of Shannon's, but that's unsubstantiated. However, he did kill himself two days after Shannon's remains were found. Bizarrely, the longtime director of food services at the aquarium, which James co-founded, also killed himself two years later in June, 2013. It's worth mentioning that man's wife also worked in a high ranking position for Suffolk County. And that's it as far as suspects go, 10 years on, and this killer has never been caught. The families believe this investigation is still ongoing because the victims were sex workers but the current task force insists this case is a top priority. They even set up a website to handle incoming tips and keep the public informed about its progress. But did they? As we were researching this episode, we tried to access Gilgonews.com several times, but always got this blank screen, so we'll see. But before I let my beautiful wife, Amy, give you recap number two, I want to share one more theory with you. Some people believe there's a connection between the Long Island murders and a series of killings in Atlantic City. In 2006, four women were strangled and found face down in a drainage ditch behind the Golden Key Motel in Egg Harbor Township outside of Atlantic City. The killer was dubbed the Eastbound Strangler because all the victims were in a row about 60 feet apart facing East. Only their shoes and socks were missing, and just like the victims 170 miles away in Long Island, the women were all sex workers. Their killer has never been caught. What do you think is going on with this case on Long Island? Do you think there's a connection between these murders and those in Atlantic City? Let's talk about it in the comments below. But for now, that does it for me. But don't go anywhere, because Amy is coming up next to catch you up on the murder of Sydney Sutherland in Arkansas.
1: I'm Amy with True Crime Recaps. Sydney Sutherland was a 25-year-old registered nurse in Newport, Arkansas. In the late afternoon on August 19, 2020, she went out for her normal everyday run. As she ran along the country highway, her accused killer passed her in his pickup truck. The driver was a 28-year-old farmer named Quake Llewellyn. Now, according to ArkansasOnline.com, His family was the 2016 Jackson County Farm Family of the Year. On August 19th, he was on his way to check on some wells and rice fields. When he saw Sydney, his plans changed. Investigators say he made a U-turn and intentionally rammed into her with his truck. Then he put her body in the back of his truck and drove to a nearby field where he told police he started, quote, messing with her a little bit. To be perfectly clear, he allegedly pulled her shorts off and raped her. Then he buried her and drove away. I say allegedly because even though Quake confessed to all of this, he's awaiting trial on charges of capital murder, rape, kidnapping, and abuse of a corpse. And this wasn't any just random murder. According to the sheriff, Quake said he sort of knew Sydney, But according to investigators, Those two graduated only a few years apart from the same small high school in Tuckerman, Arkansas, and they were friends on Facebook, which makes sense because Newport where she lived has less than 8,000 people and Tuckerman where they went to school has less than 2,000. And the high school classes are only about 50 students per grade. So it's not totally inconceivable to think that they knew each other on some level, but according to an affidavit obtained by oxygen.com, quake unfriended sydney before her murder and police are searching for any communication they might have had on facebook when sydney didn't come home from her run by seven o'clock that night she was reported missing and the community rallied together quickly and started looking for any sign of her and get this her accused killer joined the search party and the facebook page about her disappearance He also told the police he saw her running the day she went missing, which made him one of the last people to see her alive. On August 20th, they found Sydney's phone in a field near the highway where she'd been running. And according to Oxygen.com, her broken sunglasses were found in a barn a few hundred yards away from her phone. On the 21st, they interviewed Quake and searched his cell phone and his truck. And that is when they noticed blood in the back and on the tailgate. Location data they pulled off his phone put him in the same general area as her phone and sunglasses, only an hour after she was reported missing. And that is where they found her body, buried in a shallow grave. When he was arrested for Sydney's murder, Quake confessed to all of it, hitting her with his truck, raping her body on the tailgate, and burying her. Afterwards, he said he went back to work, went home, and had dinner with his wife and three stepkids and just tried to forget about it. His lawyer asked for a mental health evaluation because surely only someone clinically disturbed could turn around, run over a woman, rape her body, and then bury her, right? No. A psychologist said he showed no signs of mental defect or disease, and he is fit to go to trial, but that's not all. He actually changed his story when he went over it again with the doctor. According to the report, instead of framing it as an intentional act of murder, he said it was an accident. He claims he drove past her, made a U-turn to go back, then accidentally hit her because the gravel road was so dusty he couldn't see her. Then he got scared of getting in trouble, so he hit her body to cover up the hit and run, which is an explanation that doesn't explain why he said he raped her or why he turned his truck around in the first place. His wife filed for divorce after his arrest.
0: Thanks for letting us catch you up on these cases. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, please subscribe and let us know you enjoyed it with a five-star review. It only takes a second, but it means the world to us.
1: And hey, if you like to watch... Oh, wait, that's weird. I'm just, I'm saying you should just come and say hello on YouTube at True Crime Recaps, where we're taping this podcast every Wednesday.
0: Thanks again and take care.
1: Bye.